Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Because the latest episode of Stick to Wrestling has concluded. I want to thank the Everly Brothers for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a raw bone and wicked good podcast. Before we get rolling, I want to invite everyone to join our Facebook page. Just uh, put in Stick to Wrestling as a search and ask to join, and I will let you join. Just like that. Boom. Also, if you want to follow me on Twitter, search John McAdam and follow the guy who has Moondog Maine and Don Morocco fighting with chairs in his avatar. And with that, we're going to go do something that we haven't done in a long time. Have I mentioned that this is Stick to Wrestling? I think I have. Yeah, this is the Stick to Wrestling podcast. (laughs) I want to bring in someone who is doing his maiden voyage here on Stick to Wrestling. He's someone I have known online for like 20 years and... This is the first time we've ever spoken. Alfred Summerall, thanks for coming on. Hey, John. How's it going? Happy to be here. And yeah, crazy. 20 years and we've never actually physically spoken to each other. No. At least over the phone. No, not even, not even on the phone. This is the first time. Alfred is a, I am a big Tennessee Volunteers fan and Alfred is an Ole Miss fan and an alumni at that. Yep. Howdy, howdy. <laughs> you got your master's there, right? I did. I got my bachelor's and my master's from Ole Miss. Yeah, in political science, I was there during the... My master's was actually during the Eli Manning years, so up until five, six years ago, our last, you know, sort of glory days. Ah, you, well, you, I mean, you Ole Miss beat Alabama twice, like, yeah, like within five was, years, yeah, right? That's what was, yeah, they beat them in 14 and 15, and then it went south pretty quick. So we had brief glory days there, made that Sugar Bowl. And now it's just hoping to try to, you know, climb a couple of rungs up the ladder this year, see what Kiffin has with that offense. Uh, Lane Kiffin's a good coach. And I'll tell you something. I hope I live long enough to see my beloved Tennessee volunteers play in another Sugar Bowl. It's not all about the national championship for me. I want to win the SEC. Sure. No, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, that was when Ole Miss went in 15. They hadn't been to one. I mean, they never played and won the Superdome. So they hadn't been to one since. I think, you know, late 60s, maybe even maybe before that. Uh, late 60s sounds right to me. I don't have that right in front of me. But yeah. anyway, we better stick to wrestling and stop talking about football. <laughs> we'll be doing this yeah, for an hour. We'll be talking about this for hours. Yep. <laughs> All right. So I'm bringing back a feature. We are going to have kind of a tribute to the summer of 1987 and Thanks to WrestlingScans.com. That's all one word. It's a pretty cool site. They have scans of old wrestling magazines. Not all of them. They have a bunch of them. Uh, We're going to talk about what was going on summer of 1987. We are looking at the October 1987 edition of Inside Wrestling, which came out in August and has news probably from like right around May or July. And the lead story is John Stossel, the reporter who was hit twice in the head by David Schultz while conducting an investigation for ABC's 2020 news program, has reached an out-of-court settlement with Vince McMahon and Titan Sports. Stossel was received $425,000. Stossel claimed he p- received permanent damage when he was hit on the ears by Schultz after stating that 
his opinion that professional re- wrestling is quote unquote fake. Any thoughts on this? One thing yeah, that was in here so, that I thought was really funny. Uh, Robert Kellner, his attorney, said it would not be useful to go after Dr. D. David Schultz for, from a financial standpoint. <laughs> well, that's probably accurate. I mean, you know, he had worked. Uh, so I was, I mean, to preface, I was turning eight in the summer of 87. So I don't have any recollection of actually watching this on 2020 when I was you know, five. But I'm sure I'd seen it or heard of it since then. One thing I did do is look at what $425,000 is worth today, and it's just a hair over a million dollars right now. So, I mean, a pretty good, um, you know, pretty good settlement in 1987 money and in 2021 money for, you know, a couple of punches to the, to the ears. I will take that right now. You can come, you know, fly up to Milwaukee and punch me for a million dollars. I'll tell you what, though. Dr. D. David Schultz was a really big guy. He was a big guy for a wrestler, not just for a regular person. Yeah, and he yeah. hit that guy hard, man. He, wow. He, he did. He did. He did. I mean, it seems like the one was definitely way harder than the other. I don't know if it's, you know, in just in what, and haven't seen it so many times over the years, but yeah, it is funny when they, they said it would not be useful to go after from a financial standpoint, you know, really, I mean, how much was he, you know, he was kind of almost in and out of WWF. I mean, he was obviously out after that, you know, before he, I know he was in Memphis a lot. When did he start wrestling? Maybe late seventies or he hadn't been around too long. Right. Uh, I want to say he started like 1974 and okay. I, he was in the magazines by 1976. Okay. So, I mean, he'd been around, but you know, who knows what his payouts were and all that, but you know, I, I don't think they would have approached 425,000 from a guy that's you know, a lot of check payments and, you know, probably not, you know, just a, a lot of money spent on transportation and whatever else he was spending it on. So it sounds like I, the lawyer went went the right direction. It sounds like that to me. I think Schultz was completely out of the business by 1987. Uh, he was yeah. a legitimate bounty hunter and he got fired. Not not from not for slapping around Stossel, because a lot of people think McMahon put him up to it because but he. He got fired because he tried to start a legit fight with Mr. T right before WrestleMania, like a couple oh, months you're before right. WrestleMania. Oh, yeah, you're right. I have read about that. So that would have been, you know, three, four months later, or that buildup starts, you know, January, February of 85. Yeah, you, that would have been right after that. Now, have you seen the 2020 special? I've Yeah, I mean, I've seen the interview and I've seen that years ago, but yeah, I've seen that. I remember watching it live. I think I was 18 or 19 and the only thing i really got out of it was like you know i mean you know they run the report okay pro wrestling's not on the up and up which everyone knows but the thing the only thing i got out of it watching was wow that's where the blood comes comes from they they actually cut each they actually cut their own foreheads yeah (laughs) i can tell you how i learned about that was mid-south uwf one of the two probably one of the very first times we got to sit ring sites where i grew up in Gulfport, Mississippi is right next to Biloxi, and they ran, you know, almost probably about every two weeks they ran Biloxi. Well, the first time sitting ringside in that territory, you're going to see the blood very quickly. And I can't remember who it was for the life of me, but he couldn't have been a foot away from me. And it was plain as day, just, you know, he had the, the blade in his tape, you know, on his wrist tape. And well, I mean, to a, to, to a seven-year-old, well, that made that make sense. I just, I, I, I never understood why I never pieced it together because you would see the wrestlers with cuts on their heads. It's obviously yep. not a blood capsule because there's too much blood. And I just never pieced yep. it together, I guess, because I'm not Dusty's that intelligent. Forehead. Yeah. Dusty's <laughs> forehead, Abdullah's forehead. 
Magnum TA's forehead. Oh yeah, oh yeah, Magnum for a guy that didn't wrestle very long. I mean, imagine. I mean, I assume he would have stopped at some point, but imagine if he the accident had not happened, what his forehead looks like in 1993, 1994. You know, oh, all those four games he may have been in. When did you start going to the matches? So the very first I can remember was probably about 1986. I remember. I can't remember for sure. Was it a? It was either a world class. World class came to Bloxy too for some reason because the TV was there. It was either an NWA show in Hattiesburg, which is about an hour north, or a world-class show in Biloxi. And then I remember there was also a WWF show, because they came about once a year. And we had a really good TV setup back then during the territory days, because we got the TV, we got the New Orleans channels, Biloxi Gulf Board had one channel, we had ABC affiliate, then later Fox, and we also got the Mobile channel, so we got like the the Alabama territory, it looks like we'll talk about a little bit. Um, so we got this huge thing, and then we get the Memphis TV, it was about a week late, we got ESPN, so we got a- AWA, so we got, you know, just, and then there, you know, some of the, and then we, every now and then we would get the, the Joe Pettuccino show, the um, Pro Wrestling This Week, or whatever it's called. But yeah, so I mean, it was a good time to grow up. You know, it was a good time to become aware of wrestling um, in that 86, 87 range. Oh, 86, 87 was, I mean, it was such a golden age in a lot of ways for wrestling because so many people had so much access to so much wrestling. I mean, just yep. up here, we got like 12 or 13 hours a week. And I, growing up, I was used to getting exactly one hour a week and that was <laughs> for it. Sure. For sure. And having gone back and and watch some of that one hour a week you got on WWE Network, I don't see how you became a wrestling fan, because it's horrible. (laughs) It's awful. (laughs) You know what? Unlike a lot of WWF, old school WWF fans, I I can admit it was awful. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I tried. Uh, I think I went through about four or five episodes. I'm like, oh, this is cool. And I'm watching stuff. I think it was stuff from the year I was born, 79, when they they put all that up. Oh, my God. It was... (laughs) It was terrible. I made it through maybe about I don't know, a month or so, you know. I, I, I can't blame you. I mean, I believe me, I know it was nothing but squash matches with the exception of like three or four maybe made events every year. And yeah. I mean, tw- two of them would be the tag team titles changing hands, which you knew the tag team titles were changing hands. And right. they would run maybe two or three angles a year. That was it. And yet they yep. were hugely successful somehow. Huge in the biggest, you know, in the, in, in the biggest part of the country too. And one thing I can remember, it was funny thinking about just when we were talking about this, you know, now there's probably as much or more wrestling on TV or streaming every week, you know, original content, but you've got to search everywhere for it. Back then, I mean, if you had cable, you had 30 channels. You know, and it was all right there in front of you, so you just had to know when it was going to come on. Uh, I mean, growing up, I'm not even joking. I mean, I grew up right outside of Boston, and we had six six channels, including <laughs> PBS, until we got cable. And then we had, like, 30 channels, and, yep. God, it was, like, so futuristic. Yeah, I think we got cable in, probably, I'm thinking 84, 85. That's when I can first remember seeing wrestling on the Superstation. When I discovered the Atlanta Braves, um, which that was, you know, I mean, that, I mean, that's a fandom that's continued to this day. And yeah, definitely just, I mean, that, I think the first wrestling I can ever remember watching was on, uh, was on WTBS, probably the Saturday morning show. We're recording this July 23rd, 2021. And when I, when I was on the 605 baseball special, I was one of like five out of seven people who took the Braves 
to win the World Series, and they're Uh-oh. like, we're way past the the midway mark. And I think they're like three games under five hundred. So I think I blew yeah, that they've one. Been hugging, yeah, they've been hugging five hundred all, uh, yeah, all year really. Yeah, they're well, they're actually one game out. Let me see what they. I mean, I think they're 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 closing in on the. I mean, they're only a couple of games out of the division though. I think, which is crazy. Yeah, I know. The, the, oh, yeah, one oh, reason. Four. Yeah. Yeah. One reason I picked them was because I thought the East was going to be weak, and so far I'm right. And with Acuna gone, I mean that that's yeah. a tough blow. Man. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you called it that they're weak because I mean the Mets are you know 50 and 43, Braves are 47 and 48, but just you know, you know, when, I mean, I'm sure they'll you know the way the schedule is, the Mets and Braves will probably play each other 12 more times before the season ends. So yeah, you never know. I mean, oh, but exactly. yeah, yeah, Acuna's. I mean, Acuna going down that just killed him for sure. I mean, don't tell anyone, but I, my long shot pick was the Minnesota Twins. <laughs> <laughs> I will no, not I, tell anyone on that one. <laughs> all right. The road, oh man, this is, uh, guys, I, I apologize in advance for, for this. The Road Warriors return from another trip to Japan with their All Japan International Tag Team title intact and their egos flying high. Remember, the Road Warriors are baby faces at this point. Here we go. Animal and Hawk beat, defeated Wajima and Jumbo Saruta in Tokyo when Animal pile-drived Wajima on the arena floor and the Japanese star was counted out. Wajima was terrible. Oh, my God. Then in Osaka, Wajima and Saruta were counted out following a four-man brawl outside the ring. Here we go. Those <laughs> Jap wimps couldn't deal with it, said Animal upon the Warriors' return to America. We wiped the floor with those yellow-bellied Neo-Maxi geek-faced pus-filled Japs. I apologize. Wow. And remember, they're baby wow. faces now, Hawk added. But by winning so decisively, the Warriors may have endangered their invitation to return to Japan. Japanese wrestling officials are currently considering banning Animal and Hawk from Japan. See the November issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated. I'm trying to think of when the last I think that might have been the last time the Road Warriors as the Road Warriors went to Japan. I think Hawk and what was the guy's name from the Hellraisers? I couldn't stand him. Do you remember him? Oh. Or, um no. Uh it well not a not not the oh no. Was it Terminator or was that Johnny Ace? It wasn't Johnny Ace. Um it was it was a good Japanese wrestler, but the Hellraisers tag team absolutely sucked. But I mean, it's, I think oh, it's just I know. weird. I'm picturing the guy. Yeah, it wasn't Kendo. I'm, I can't remember. I, I, I'm picturing probably from the magazines. I'm definitely picturing him. Uh, all right. You know what? I'm going to cheat. <laughs> I'm just going to go look it up. There go. I can pick. I can definitely picture the guy. But anyway, yep. he was a good wrestler. Hawk was Hawk. He was good, but they just did not gel as a tag team. Oh, it was Kinsuke or it was Sasaki. Sasaki. Yep, I was thinking Kendo Nagasaki, but I knew that wasn't right. <laughs> yeah, so Power anyway, what, what were your thoughts about the Road Warriors at this point? I mean, it's 1987. Um, they recently, yeah. like about a year ago, they started full-time with Crockett. Yeah, I mean, they were around, you know, they did their squash matches. They, you know, I don't, because I, I couldn't remember them in the AWA. I had their, I had the, the figures, those terrible AWA figures. that were like. I remember classic. those. I had those figures. I remember the thing they did with Kurt Hennig, you know, putting his, you know, it, tying tying him up in the ropes, and he did a great blade job. Yeah, I mean, I just remember the squashes on the on the Saturday shows. Mainly, they were never really my favorite team or anything. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, I liked them because they were baby faces, and I was trained to like baby faces. Then I was too young to, you know, super cheer for the heels or anything. 
but yeah, I mean, you know, looking back, I mean, I've never thought about it, but looking back, they were just there kind of, I mean, they were, I mean, they were, you know, the hugest tag team, of course, but you know, and then I, you know, I was probably so naive to it. I don't, I didn't really think about, you know, powers of pain and demolition just being, you know, ripoffs of them either. You know, once, once, once they came around. I remember watching on TV on AWA TV. It was it was in Hammond, Indiana, and Kurt Henning got his neck caught in the ropes, and yep. there was a legitimate riot. And I remember yep. watching this, being like, "Oh my god, I didn't think this happened in the Midwest." That's how naive I was. Oh, it was crazy. Oh yeah, then, yeah, yeah. Then you look at some of the old pictures of Bobby Heenan and Crusher and all those guys, you know, bleeding like there's no tomorrow. But yeah, no, I um, yeah, I didn't know it was in Hammond. Actually, there's a terrible casino there that took all my money, or that that that, that I left some money at one time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I didn't know that was in Hammond. But it was, I think, you know, it was on AWA TV, and I think it was also on one of those AWA videos. Because I remember for Christmas one year, I got like four or five of those AWA video cassettes, and they had nice. like, you know, it was maybe thirty minutes to an hour. I mean, I wish I had them now because I think they're actually kind of, you know, sort of rare. You know, as far as in the box and stuff. But yeah, I remember that when I was a kid. And I think one of the matches was on those. Well, that makes but, sense. I mean, if the AWA had Road Warrior footage, they might as well use it because those, those yep. are the big stars right around then. All yep, right, now let's sure. take a look at is Ted DiBiase about to become a rule breaker once again? That's a, a rule breaker, a perfect inside <laughs> wrestling term. Yep. DiBiase, who for the past few years was one of the most popular stars in the UWF appears to have changed his attitude since arriving in the WWF. While DiBiase has always been something of a wealthy man, he has never flaunted his financial comfort. But now DiBiase is flaunting his wealth, has hired a bodyguard named Virgil, and frequently hands out money to fans. DiBiase has been one of the most talented stars in the game, but has never won a world championship. DiBiase might have already realized what most wrestlers in the WWF already know, to get a shot at world champion Hulk Hogan, you must be a rule breaker. First, <laughs> I, I love the constant shots at the WWF by these publications. Yep, yep. I mean, things I would have never seen as an eight-year-old reading that. I would nod in my head being like, well, clearly you have to be a rule, a rule breaker to get to Hogan, you know, because Hogan would never break the rules, even though he did in almost every match. You know? um, that was yeah, one of the things I, uh, we loved about Yeah, I read about. this. And, yeah. I, I, oh, what did you say, John? Sorry. No, I was going to say that was one of the things we loved about Hulk Hogan after yeah. six years of super bland technical Bob Backlund. We had this guy who would throw punches, you know, for like he'd start the fight. Oh yeah, I mean that. Uh, yeah, that was that, and that um, Saturday night's main event match against Harley Race. I mean, that was you know about as hardcore as something was going to get back then. It was great. I, I, I think Harley Race would probably disagree how great it was, but yeah, I mean, it was. <laughs> But, um, yeah, I mean, just to have that on Saturday night's main event was something else. And then to have it be Hulk Hogan doing this, you know, all this stuff outside the ring, through the table and all that. Probably the first table spot I think I'd ever seen. I think it was the first table spot in the WWF. And, yeah, you know, I remember hearing after the match, I forget exactly what Harley had suffered, maybe a ruptured spleen. And it was like, wow, his career's over. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was, what, 87? 87 88 i think it was 88 yeah yep and yeah so i mean granted his career would have you know more than likely been it was it was on the very very tail end at most i mean he goes to the awa or something you know after leaving wwf but i mean there really wasn't much else to do for him in wwf except for you know maybe job out to some mid-card guys but yeah that was something but 
Yeah, so DiBiase, I obviously remember him in UWF. He was you know, very popular. Well, he was very hated and very popular. Um, but yeah, I can remember the vignettes. I did not recognize Virgil as you know Soul, uh, Soul Train Jones or whatever he was in Memphis. Because, I mean, we did get the Memphis TV, but it wasn't like, I mean, it was kind of sporadic. We didn't always get it. Yeah. Um, and it's not like he was there that long, but I didn't recognize Virgil at all. And I certainly never picked up the reason why his name was Virgil either, <laughs> you know, I would have <laughs> known that till way, way later, you know, my, uh, yeah, my eight year old self was not, you know, sending money to, to, to California for the observer every week or anything. No, this is, we were talking about a period right when I first started getting the observer. I mean, I'm like six months into it. So I'm, I mean, I still haven't exactly learned the ropes or anything, but I mean, Virgil, you know, they thought he was going to be a huge star. They, he just had that look. And they were going to take a couple of years, have him with Tibiasi, learn how to work and learn how to do everything. And it just never happened for the guy. Yeah. I mean, I think once you're strapped with that gimmick, I mean, I don't know how, I mean, how they would have needed to repackage him. And even at that stage, because I mean, and it maybe it lasted too long. I don't know. But, you know, once come 1990, 1991, whenever that's happening, I mean, you've been in this gimmick for three, four years um, as a manservant. I mean, almost the same as like when Hercules became a baby face, you know, and Hercules had a great look as well, you know, so I don't know. I mean, maybe you could have teamed him up or something. They would have something in common. <laughs> you could have teamed him up or something. <laughs> really? That was one of the funniest turns ever. Like Ted DiBiase, Bobby Heenan just goes out there with, with Hercules and he's like, okay, you're Ted DiBiase's slave now. See you later. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Versus DiBiase's already got a slave, you know, so. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that was just, yeah. And he was like, I'm, you know, I'm not a slave. I'm a man. And he breaks himself from the chains or whatever it was. <laughs> Love it. It was, corny, it was terrible. I, I think yep. oh, it was just terrible. Anyway, Kurt Henning continues to regard, to disregard pleas from AWA officials to defend his title more often. DiBiase, uh, Henning, excuse me, won the title from Nick Bockwinkle in May and has refused to re- grant Bockwinkle a rematch. Greg Gagne says, it's a disgrace, but I think it's all Larry Zabisco's doing, said Gagne. Kurt was never like this before, but since he won the title, he's been a different man. Kurt Henning, the Kurt Henning I used to know, realized the only way to improve the value of the title is by defending it. Apparently, he thinks you can just keep it to himself, but he's only destroying his reputation even more. Once again, I like the fact that the magazines, if they like a promotion they will help push that promotion storylines yep. as opposed to trashing like the WWF. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, yeah. And I remember Hennig, um, yeah, I remember all the, the lead up to Lawler beating him. Cause that was, I mean, Lawler's probably my all time favorite wrestler. And I, you know, I remember the lead up to that, to him beating him in, in 88, but I don't think I knew that, you know, how often Hennig was apparently not defending the title. I'm sure he was, I mean, I guess he would show up, you know, he'd wrestle, you know, gone in those nine title bouts all over the Midwest. Yeah, I mean, th- these quotes are great. Oh, yeah, and they're, they don't, they're, they just make them out out of pure thin air, and I, yep. I don't think there was ever an angle where Henning wasn't defending the title. I think, you know, the magazine just kind of made up their own scripts sometimes, and that's why we love them. Yep, yep. And, I, yeah, and I don't remember Snooker much in the AWA around that time. I mean, I, yeah, I, mean, I guess he, he had to have gone somewhere between leaving WWF and, and coming back to WWF about 90 or 91. I don't, I, I don't have much memory of him being in AWA in 87, but I was pretty forgettable, pretty forgettable run. 
No, he was in and out of the AWA um, after the WWF let him go for good, like right around summer of 1985. Um, yeah. They did an angle where Colonel De Beers' pile drove him outside the ring, and it was, you know, a typical pro wrestling race baiting. Like, you know, yeah. De Beers goes after the guy with you know, the person of color or whatever. It, it was tasteless even back then. Well, yeah, I mean, they did that every month in AWA, so I probably just forgot that it was Snuka one time because <laughs> they were doing it. <laughs> Yeah, that your De Beers, you know, did it, you know, month after month after month. All right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Central States tag team belts were ruled vacant after champions Bobby Jaggers and Brad Batten had an argument and refused to defend the title together. Wow. <laughs> Once again, yeah. I think they're making up their own angles. There was a yep. point where I thought Bobby Jaggers was going to be a star. He looked so good in Florida. And by the time I saw him in Southwest in 1983, it was like someone stole his charisma. What do you, what, do you have any thoughts on Bobby Jaggers? Yeah, I don't. I mean, I have vague memories of him in the from the magazines and from what little I might have seen of him. I mean, he showed didn't he show up some in WCW late 80s or so? Or was he with was he one of the Desperados? No, he wasn't one of the Desperados. But um, I mean, I, I know the name and I know Brad Batten because he had what was his twin brother's name was it Bart? Yes, Bat Bart twin. Um, now I did not, I was unaware until reading this, that Bobby Jaggers and Brad Batten apparently, you know, maybe had to fight over their payoff or something. And <laughs> one of them, I would imagine one of them left the territory or something. Cause you know, knowing what we know now about central States, um, about their payoffs and all that, but yeah, very vague, vague to no memory of central States really as a territory. I knew it was Kansas city. I knew occasionally on the NWA or WCW shows, they would show footage from Kansas City. Um, I just remember the ring. I, it seemed to me they had this tiny little ring compared to WWF and compared to, you know, what you would normally see in the NWA. So that's just a weird, I could be, you know, totally off from 30 no, you're not. years ago. But, oh, good. So, I was, yeah, I just remember this. It was like tiny little ring that, you know, Harley Race, I guess, owned or always wrestled, you know, Flair or, or it's funny seeing, you know, some when people either either in you know your Facebook group or some of the other places, they'll post these cards, you know, Flair against um, Rufus R. Jones, and someone the other just the other day posted one. It wasn't Rufus R. Jones, but it was somebody like just as terrible. It wasn't Bulldog Bob Brown, but I can't remember who it was. But it was like, I mean, Flair earned had to have earned every penny he got that night, who he was having to defend the title against, because you know that match probably went forty five fifty minutes. Yeah, Flair in his book talked about how, you know, Geigel didn't want to pay for his airfare and how he had one of his robes stolen in central states because there was no security. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy on that territory. I mean, you know, and I think we actually even in the, I think it was in Stick to Wrestling, we actually talked about this. I mean, if the pay, and I think I even brought it up, if the payouts had been good, just, you know, good to okay in that territory, you know, during the summer months, it's not a hard territory. You might get an occasional blizzard or something in the winter. But it wasn't this huge territory. It wasn't like Watts driving three, four thousand miles a, a week, you know. Because just geographically, those cities aren't that, you know, aren't that far flung out. You know, like even Kansas City to Lincoln is a haul, but it's not, you know, it's not Biloxi to, you know, Oklahoma City like Watts would make you do. No, Watts was Watts was funny. He just he did not care if he if if it put ten bucks in his pocket in his pocket, yep. you were driving four hundred miles. He just did exactly. not care. Each way, each way through those roads. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, some of those roads in Louisiana still haven't been paved since, you know, the Watts Territory was running or haven't been repaved. Oh, you man. Know, so I can imagine, yeah. I can imagine. No, the uh, the, the t typical line on Mid-South was you would make more there than anywhere else, but you'd make half of what you were supposed to make. 
So anyway, magazines are put into an uncomfortable situation here. The Iron Sheik was recently sentenced to a year probation following his arrest May 27th in New Jersey. Sheik was charged with possession of marijuana and cocaine. The status of Hacksaw Duggan charged in the incident with marijuana and driving while intoxicated remains uncertain as of press time. Um, This was incredibly uncomfortable. They pull over Iron Sheik driving with Hacksaw Jim Duggan, who are in the middle of a blood feud together, but they're both high as giraffe's asses in the same car, both in the front seat. Yep. I, yeah, I don't remember how I knew I heard about this. I don't remember how it could have been in the magazines or an actual, you know, in the newspaper, the Sun Herald and Bluxy or something. Because I know it made national. I mean, it made, I mean, it was covered probably in every sports section or every newspaper. Because, I mean, you know, people knew who the Iron Sheik was um, from the cartoon, if nothing else. Um, and Hacksaw Duggan, especially in the South, was, you know, immensely popular just coming off his, his huge run in Mid-South. It made I saw it make it that it made USA Today because I used to get USA Today every day back then, and it definitely made the New York papers. It made the papers all over the place because I mean sometimes the jokes write themselves. I mean pro wrestling right. obviously is not on the up and up, and you know after years of denying it, you find these guys once again in a blood feud, driving around together partying. It was it was an embarrassment. Yeah, and it had to be. I mean, and yeah, I mean, it's the very last thing. And, you know, to, to, we were just talking about Bill Watts a minute ago. To his point, if that, you know, if you were not arrested, but if you were just caught out to dinner or whatever, I mean, he'd fire you. Or that's at least the word. If a baby face and a heel were caught anywhere together, you know, you'd both be fired. Um, same as if you lost a bar fight. Or at least yeah, that was exactly. always the, you know, the, the, the word on the street, at least. Oh, no, that was that was legit. If you got into a bar and lost a fight, you, Watts was going to fire you. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it, Watts, you know, and I get it. Like, you don't want the baby faces and the heels mixed up in public. Um, I remember sure. 87, I was in a bar in Philadelphia, and all of the wrestlers were there. And the Midnight Express and the Road Warriors were, or Stan Lane and the Road Warriors were having fun together. And... But, you know, it was like, okay, if you're going to the Marriott or whatever, you're going to know what's up. I mean, I I think that's just a different scenario. Yeah, for sure. This isn't like some, you know, country redneck bar somewhere outside of Shreveport or Alexandria or something like that, where even if they're not on the up and up, they're going to, you know, they're going to challenge you or something. You know, you would think you would hope the the Marriott would attract a little bit better clientele that just wants (laughs) an act that maybe just wants to be by the act by the wrestlers. That's that's exactly what it was. And plus the wrestlers, you know. If you're like, hey, you know, you're in the same room as a heel as a guy you're feuding with, the wrestler would always say, hey, I get paid. I get paid to fight. I don't fight in bars. Yep, that's a good line. Yeah, it's funny. I can remember my uh, my mother met Lord Littlebrook and one of the other. Um, I want to say midgets. I know I shouldn't say that. They were billed as midgets. They were billed as midgets. I was going to say, if you need to edit that out, we will. But it was Lord Littlebrook and one of the other ones. She managed she managed the Kmart back home, and they came in there, and she um got her picture with them because she was she's you know a foot or six six inch probably a foot taller than them, um but they were the matches that night. She brought the picture home. The matches that night, I was there, and sure enough, they were wrestling each other. Of course, they were traveling together. But you know, and even then, at seven eight years old, I didn't think anything about it. You know, but you know, Bill Watts would not have liked them both going into that Kmart together. Um, and I, I can kind of see his point. 
Yeah, sure. And this probably was a UWF show, so he really wouldn't have liked it. But maybe he didn't care too much about the midgets who didn't really work for him. I can, I can see that. All right, we're going to Alabama. The Bullet defeated Mike yep. Golden for the Alabama title on June 22nd. Birmingham, Alabama, after a rather confusing series of events, Golden was the Alabama champion when his friend Tom Pritchard lost the U.S. junior heavyweight title to Scott Armstrong. It was then agreed that Golden and Pritchard would meet the Bullet and Armstrong in a tag team match. If Golden or Pritchard lost the fall, then Armstrong, the top contender for the Alabama title, would win the belt. If Bullet or Armstrong lost the fall, Pritchard would regain the U.S. title. Armstrong pinned Golden, and the Bullet was awarded the Alabama title. This is slightly more confusing than the 1996 edition of Raw. Sure. Yep. And I um. So I watched Alabama TV almost every week on Channel Five and Mobile. I had to Google Mike Golden today. I naturally assumed he was part of the Jimmy Golden, Robert Fuller, Ron Fuller. Every, you know, the largest probably you know the the largest non-Samoan wrestling family there is. Um. But no, apparently he's not. <laughs> um. So and I just had no recollection of this guy whatsoever. It looks like he wrestled in Portland, Texas All Star. He must have just been passing through Alabama here over the summer or something. I don't really remember him. I remember him. and I thought he had a lot of potential. He played football at the University of Tulsa, and he had a girlfriend who was his valet. Uh, her name was Fantasy, and what yeah. a body on this chick. But, you know, yeah, they from the neck great. up, uh, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they, uh, yeah, I mean, I saw a couple of pictures and I saw, and he had a good look for sure. Um, yeah, but for, yeah, her from the neck up, uh, but they could be set for a lot of those eighties ballets, you know, in hindsight. Yeah, good uh, point. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, I, um, yeah, I don't remember this guy at all. Tom Pritchard, of course, I remember him. Um, and I also noticed they misspelled his name every single time they wrote that, you know, in, in the magazine, they, they misspelled his last name, but yeah, sure. All the Armstrongs. Yeah, but you know, really, I've was I've been listening to um once the format for Arn Anderson's podcast changed to kind of a a progression to you know sort of go you know from getting his start in the business to where you know he spent all that time in in Pensacola and Alabama and in that whole territory and um just the way he's you know they would describe some of these crazy stipulation matches these four on three matches they would do these other kind of weird cage matches they would do I mean I don't know what you know Armstrong and Fuller you know, what they were doing sitting on the beach in Pensacola, you know, to, to come up with some of these stipulations, but they were crazy. You know, in the eighties, I, early nineties, like I knew a lot of the wrestlers and I kind of knew how to approach guys and get them to hang out and whatever. And things changed over time. I think the internet changed things because in early 2001, I went to the Brian Pillman Memorial show I walked up to Steve Regal and I'm like, you know, he had a great match with Chris Benoit. And I just, you know, wanted to shake his hand, told him what a great match he was. And this guy was like staring me down, like, you know, get the hell away from me. And so anyway, <laughs> later that night, I'm like, well, you know, I, I got rebuffed by Kevin Nash. I'm like, what's going on here? Everyone likes me. So I go up to Tom Pritchard and I act like I used to correspond with him when he was younger through yeah. the newsletters. I got to have a conversation with him that way. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a weasel. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, got to do what you got to do. Now I remember um, Regal made. So when I was at Ole Miss, when the Memphis Championship Wrestling was the, I guess, the developmental at the time, they came to there's this terrible bar called the Oxford Billiards Club, 
and they would wrestle there almost every week. Um, I think it was my senior year, maybe. And and Regal's down there a good bit. And he was it was right when he was, um, you know, super, you know, making that comeback after all those dependency issues he had. But yeah, I mean, I managed to talk to him a couple of times. You know, super nice guy. Later ran into him and Cody at on an airplane together, and actually sat like two rows behind him. Um, I didn't bother him or anything. They were coming, I guess, going home to Atlanta from from Philly. I think. Um, from a show the previous night, but yeah, I mean, he was a, he was a nice guy. I guess he, you know, m- maybe he got a better vibe off me the year before uh, than you at the Pillman show. <laughs> I, I was giving out the wrong vibes all night. I, I didn't know what was yeah. going on. So like I said, I had to make up a story, but yeah. Tom was really cool. All right. The yeah. sheep herders scored a controversial victory over Steve Kern and Mike Graham for the Florida tag team titles. Butch Miller and Kern were the legal men in the ring, but Graham and Luke Williams were fighting illegally when Graham put Williams in the figure for a leg lock. The referee tried to break it up while this was happening. Kern clamped a sleeper hold on Miller. Miller was clearly unconscious when the sheep herders. Flag bearer Johnny Ace smashed Kern on the head with a flagpole. Miller rolled up on top of Kern as the referee returned to count the pin. Johnny Ace at this point was considered a future star and it happened for him a little bit in Japan, but not really in the United States. Yep. Um, yeah. So I don't, so we didn't get Florida, um, but I knew who the sheep herders were um, obviously from, you know, when they were in mid South and, and all that in the magazines, of course. Yeah. So it's weird. It seems Steve Kern, not tied to, st- you know, I, I figured Steve Kern had to do something between the fabulous ones and coming in a Skinner and WWF, but yeah, so Johnny Ace, I mean, I mean, I think I mentioned him earlier, just mistakenly, you know, forgetting that he was not in that, um, that team with Hawk in, in Japan. But yeah, I mean, I didn't, I'd never seen him until the dynamic dudes. I don't think unless he was, yeah, I mean, well, no, I do remember him as the flag bearer for sure. I do. Cause it was him. And then Jack victory was after him. I think it's the flag bearer. Nope. That's right. Um, and- yep. But yeah, I didn't know. You know, I clearly didn't know he was Road Warrior Animal's brother um, or anything like that. But, yeah, so, yeah, I'd never seen him wrestle or anything until the Dynamic Dudes. No, they, they, at the NWA, when right around this time, Florida was about to be absorbed by the NWA. And, and I got Florida wrestling on cable um, on Sports Channel, which, you know, that was nice. the Celtics channel. I could see yeah. this promotion was going out of business. And. As soon as Crockett stopped helping him out, they more or less, more or less folded right after. And Kern broke up the fabulous ones at first because he got his realtor's license in Florida, and now he's back in the business. I'm not exactly sure what happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I guess. We, so, so Kern is back. I know he, you know, basically founded FCW. Is he still doing anything? Oh, you mean he's back in the business here in '87? Right. He was out for a while and then he came back. So I guess the whole being a realtor thing didn't work out for him. Yeah. Or at that time, I mean, the market, had probably, you know, you never, especially in Florida that, you know, I know that the, the oil market, you know, tanks, you know, the heartland, but who knows in Florida, you know, cause they're, but that real estate market's always so weird anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you hear stories about them building up these, you know, condos with 200 units and no one wants to buy a single one anyway. Exactly. Exactly. Barry Switzer, coach of the Oklahoma University football team, is helping Steve Williams recover from a broken arm and will be in Dr. Death's corner when he takes on Big Bubba Rogers for the UWF title July 11th in Oklahoma City. Switzer coached Williams at Oklahoma. 
Just the guy you would want to help you recover from a broken arm is Barry Switzer. Exactly. I mean, he can sit in his huge throne that he always sits in whenever they interview him for some ESPN special and just, you know, tell, tell Doc what he needs to do to get it better. I mean, this had to be Bill Watts and Jim Ross's Christmas. I mean, Christmas was is celebrated on July 11th at those two houses. I think if they had Barry Switzer in their arena with Dr. Death. By the, yeah, but I mean, Barry Switzer, obviously, at this point, was the, the, the king of the state of Oklahoma. He just came off a national championship. Watts was building up Steve Williams to be his Hulk Hogan. Uh, he was right at that finish line uh, when he sold to to Crockett. Ted DiBiase was about to turn heel. I mean, he was like two weeks away from his heel turn, and they were going to use Ted to build up uh Steve Williams into Watts's Hulk Hogan when Watts saw WrestleMania three and decided to get the hell out of the business. Yep. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, I guess I mean, he, he, that check cleared. So he kind of won on, he definitely won on all fronts there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he got, he, he, I think he agreed to 4 million and was going to get paid out. It was, he was going to, going to get it in payments. And he wound up getting like two and a half million for something he was going to fold anyway. So once again, watch yeah, wins. Brilliant. Which is amazing that uh, 14 years later, that's crazy. I think 87 to 2001 was only 14 years. But yeah, 14 years later, that's roughly around what WWF buys WCW for. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even <laughs> when it happened, I mean, Meltzer was saying that, you know, they, they got it for pennies. The, the film uh, library was worth more than the, 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 I think it was 4 million that WCW yep. sold for, but I mean, where else are they going to get the 4 million? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you could argue, I mean, what, you know, I don't want to argue with Dave on if the film library was actually worth 4 million. I would say probably not because I doubt they've made that much off DVDs, but I mean, to have it for the network, I mean, it's content you had to have, but so, yeah, I mean, and probably in hindsight and you know, knowing that, you know, if we believe that Vince probably first thought of the network in the 80s or 90s, really, or this idea of having all this content out there for everybody, wanting to collect all this footage. Um, yeah, I mean, four million was it literally was pennies. Yeah, I, I mean, it's even you know, even 20 years ago, you're like, wow, that that's all the WCW yeah. trademarks and everything else are worth. Yeah. Brief note: Scott Hall and Bugsy McGraw have returned to Florida. Two very different kind of guys. Very different. Yeah, not much memories of Bugsy. I know he he was he was crazy. That's about it. And yeah, I mean Scott Hall even. You know the Scott Hall of the '80s looks nothing like Diamond Stud, Razor Ramon, NWO Scott Hall. But man, he was just huge, huge guy. He's a huge guy, good-looking dude. I remember watching the Florida TV. And they did this video where they, they flew him in on a private jet and they went to a fancy restaurant. They got some champagne. This was uh, the, the Florida promoter, not Eddie Graham, but, uh, well, the announcer. I can't remember his name. It was the announcer and another guy. And they signed Scott Hall to the biggest contract in sports history, not wrestling history, sports, sports history. history. Sports history. I don't know what the biggest contract you. We should look to see who was the highest paid player in baseball, you know, basketball and football in 87. They're probably, you know, making minimum wage compared to today. But yeah, in sports history. <laughs> I think I think in 1987, Jim Rice was the highest paid player. I think he was making two and a half million dollars a year, but I am not sure. And pretty soon that money was going to multiply thanks to the new contract with ESPN. All right. All right. Yeah, and I yeah. think. I think Larry Bird was probably basketball, but he couldn't have been making one, one and a half. 
Oh, you know what? It had to be Michael Jordan, including the endorsements. It had to be. Including the endor- yeah, it, with the endorsements. Yeah, but as far as your actual contract. Yeah, because I bet Jordan was probably still on his rookie contract. As yeah. far as what he was actually making. But yeah, um, yeah, I remember Scott Hall in AWA mid-80s. And I think he was his nickname was Big. Big Scott Hall. Yes. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Very creative. Yeah, very creative. I mean, it's, it, it, it is accurate, but yes. Yeah, Scott Hall is one of those deceptively big guys. I met him. I met Billy Gunn a couple of times. You know, I'm a big guy. I'm you know six three ish or so. But I mean, like Billy Gunn, it feels like just dwarfs me. He's really only probably six five, but he's six five tall and wide. I mean, that is just a huge guy. I mean, I, I said this on the show before. Like I, I grew up around some New England Patriots players, and these guys were big. And I remember the first time I was around wrestlers. I was like, these guys make the football players look small. I mean, the warlord was the size of like two refrigerators. He was insane. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're so broad. Yeah, I mean, they're just so broad. Yeah. Shoulders, all that. Yeah. All right. After a few, after a brief stay, the Midnight Rockers have left the WWF. Oh, my. The shortest, this is the shortest thing in this whole thing. I read that. I mean, it's like, yeah, and there's a picture of them, you know, and as I read that, it's just like, man, <laughs> you know, and then. Moving on to the craziest thing, but that's probably the most newsworthy thing of all. This whole article, besides probably the the Stossel um, lawsuit, they give the Alabama title, you know, basically a full paragraph. Bruno winning a 21 man battle royal that I don't think we talked about, but that just sounds amazing. Um, but then they're like, yeah, here's five words about the Midnight Rockers. We'll never hear from them again. Their careers were definitely in jeopardy at this point because they. Vince was trying to he Vince had just suspended six wrestlers for failing drug tests. He wanted the WWF lifestyle to go in a different direction. He wanted everyone to calm down a little bit. And Michaels and Janetti just show up and they're the, the two wildest wild men of all time. <laughs> and yeah. Vince is like, OK, see you guys later. He was having flashbacks of the Freebirds showing up in 84, whenever that was, and Andre basically firing him in a house show, you know, as I've heard. And I hadn't heard that flashbacks. story. Yeah, I've heard, I don't know, I think I've heard it maybe on like, you know, Richard's podcast or something. We're talking, you know, that very brief run, the Freebirds were, were there, and I guess they were just being drunk and idiots. And then Andre just looks up from his card game, basically like, you know, you get out of here, whatever. That was it for the Freebirds. I don't know. I mean, how, how true that is, but. And, I, and I'm not going to do an Andre impression because it'll suck. But I can just see Andre like, yeah, I can just, you know, picture Andre on his, you know, 84th uh, can of beer and just looking up and be like, you get out of here. You're fired. You know, I mean, he was going to argue with him. <laughs> you know, he's going to argue with him. Oh, the Freebirds had earlier that year were in mid-Atlantic for a TV taping and Hayes was running his mouth over something and Wahoo McDaniel gets in his face. Well, Terry Gordy you know, tries to be, I don't know exactly what happened, but Terry tried to back up Michael Hayes and then Harley race backed up Wahoo McDaniel, two guys you would never want to mess with. And the Freebirds were quickly gone from mid Atlantic. Yep. I would give, you know, I I mean, I would give Gordy at least a puncher's chance against either of those, but not both. And, you know, Hayes is going to be about worthless in in that. Um, I mean, Gordy was a tough guy. I don't know if he was Wahoo or Harley race tough. Yeah, and Gordy was a tough guy, and like you said, I would give him a chance against either one of those two. But you know, it was, it was Michael Hayes supposedly who started the whole thing, and Michael's. I mean, I like Michael. He's just not going to fight Racer Wahoo. No, or anyone. <laughs> 
oh, I've been waiting to get to this. This is like this yeah. would be would have been a dream come true. Joe Pedicino, host of Superstars of Wrestling, is scheduled to hold the first Superstar Power Games at Six Flags Theme Park in Atlanta in August. Wahoo McDaniel, Bruiser Brody, Sergeant Slaughter, Crusher Blackwell, and others are slated to compete in several athletic and game events for big prizes. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> well, first of all, I've been to Six Flags in Atlanta. I've not been in August because only an idiot would go there in August. It's 146 degrees in the shade here in August, first of all. But, yeah, this is amazing. <laughs> I mean, this, this sounds amazing. It, it sounds like Battle of the Network stars, but with wrestlers. I mean... And not on the network. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, who wants to see Wahoo McDaniel and Bruiser Brody and Crusher Blackwell like in a swim race? I would kill to see that. I I would love it. I want to see Crusher Blackwell. I mean, he's clearly one of the most underrated five foot seven, 450 pound guys ever. But anything athletic, I would love to see him try to to dive off a diving board, um, a a log roll, anything you want to do. Um, (laughs) This is amazing. Yeah, this is just amazing. Potato sack race with Bruiser Brody. I love it. I love the concept. I would. I. I want this on DVD. Damn it. Yeah, I mean, they, if uh, Vern would have done the uh, team challenge series like this, the AWA might still be around today. <laughs> they would definitely have my money. I'll tell you that much. All right, that's the end of the news segment. Let me find the ratings. Here we go. Yep. All right, let's focus on tag teams for a minute. They have the Road Warriors as the number one tag team in the world. They are the number two contenders for the NWA World Tag Team title. I guess it it speaks volumes that the Roadies are are ranked number one despite not having a championship. Yeah, and who I don't I'm trying to scan. I don't even see who are the number. I guess the the U.S. Tag Champions were by default the number one contender. So there's been I expressed before. Yeah, this is almost like those college football rankings where a team loses and doesn't drop very far but i mean yeah i mean they'd never be number one yeah that's just weird and there's bret hart's name misspelled right under there so great copy editing uh, well for the longest time they had bret with two two t's the hart foundation is ranked number two wwf world tag team titles but i mean i guess the roadies being number one has more to do with yeah i mean we all knew who the number one tag team in the world was and one, they didn't. They never need the titles. I mean, they're like the Undertaker, and you know these guys that never needed the titles to be over to be an attraction. Because even in '87, they were an attraction. Or once you heard that music, everybody's to their feet. They're going to run to the ring. Yeah, I mean, it's just. I mean, that's what you came to see sometimes. It, it almost felt like when the Road Warriors won the NWA Tag Team Titles in 1988, it was almost like they were above the championship. Yeah, and then I remember when they, them and Dusty had the six man titles, and they get, it was to to do the to do the turn where they spike. You know, they put the spike in Dusty's eye and all that. But just, I mean, yeah, they never needed titles. You know, I don't I don't think of the Road Warriors with titles. I mean, I know they won them in WWF ninety one or ninety two, I guess, or I think they did. But yeah, I mean, I never saw them as a team that needed any titles. No, they were, it was almost like they were above tag team wrestling. You brought up the spike angle. The word in 1988 when Turner first bought the NWA was that Dusty was going to be retained as Booker because they really didn't have anyone else. And they had a strict no blood, no excessive violence um, 
rule that they just put out there. And then Dusty goes right out almost in an act of defiance and does a bloody violent angle. And that was the end of Dusty in the NWA, or it, it would soon be the end of Dusty. He was gone like a week later. I, di- I didn't know that. I, I never knew that history behind it. I can just remember watching it and just being a great visual and, you know, almost as similar to, you know, you, I mean, you didn't see blood on blood. Wasn't, I mean, blood seemed like more of a house show thing. I mean, you didn't see blood too much on the weekly shows. WWF, you hardly ever saw it. Then you had the Ron Bass and Brutus Beefcake thing. I mean, that was just crazy around that time, maybe a year after that. Um, and maybe it was 87. But yeah, you just, I don't remember seeing a ton of blood on the weekly shows. No, by this point, the WWF had completely banned blood uh, from TV. We, we They had blood once in 1987 when Andre the Giant accidentally uh, pop Lanny Poffo open on Saturday night's main event. And they actually showed it. It was kind of like, wow, blood in the WWF. And yeah. by 89 WCW was getting caught up. I mean, let's face it, you know, it's kind of gross blading yourself. And then there was the AIDS issue. So, you know, yeah. they, they wanted to be more family friendly and dusty just said, no, I'm doing it my way. And they're like, well, bye dust. Exactly. All right. And then he goes to the, the very, very last days of Florida. Yeah, I had mentioned I mentioned on the show before Dusty supposedly had run around for about a year saying, you know, hey, if I'm not happy with what's going on in the NWA, if I'm not happy with what it is after it's sold, I'll just go to Florida and start championship wrestling from Florida again. And he tried. It didn't work. I could have told him it wasn't going to work. Exactly. For about six months wearing polka dots. Yep. Now, let me ask you this. What did you think of the polka dot thing? They they have they the WWF had have denied giving Dusty that gimmick in in an attempt to embarrass slash uh, humble him. Uh, But I just don't see it. I think they definitely wanted to to humble him. Oh, 100 percent. I mean, yeah, there's no way there's there's no way. I mean, he comes in. I mean, just yeah, I mean, he comes in basically as a kind of a halfway gimmick, I guess. You know, even the the original vignette with him, you know, was the son of a plumber, which is true. But then, you know, basically, it could have been a T.L. Hopper um, vignette from five years or six years later. Yeah, no, it, it was totally embarrassing. It was totally a rib. And, you know, anytime Pritchard or anybody else says it's not, I mean, you know, I, I, I think they're ribbing themselves just by saying that. that, that I, I, wrestlers ribbing themselves is not the most uncommon thing. I mean, some some of the guys in the business believe some stuff that you can't believe someone would believe. Like, you know, they think the NFL is fixed. Right. Anyway, this hour has flown by Alfred. I am so glad I finally got to talk to you after all these years. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thanks, John. It was definitely a pleasure. I'd love to be back. I'd love to have you back. We'll, we'll definitely have you back. Um, I want to thank Lou Kippelman, our producer for all the great work he does. And we'll see you next week. Everyone, please go out and get vaccinated. There's no reason not to. I feel so much better and so much safer now that I've had it done. So let me encourage you. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm encouraging you. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. This concludes our podcast day. 